When the COVID-19 threat first reared its head, it wasn't long before it was called the Great Equaliser because it seemed no one was immune to the virus. I contracted COVID when I was overseas. I was working in France at the time and then I was going to have a holiday. And we were aware that COVID was happening. It was just bubbling in the background. But fast forward into a multi-year, long-haul pandemic, and we now know it's a great magnifier of inequality. What are we going to do about the mother on the seventh floor of the North Melbourne Housing Commission flats who has two small children and she needs to stay home and she doesn't have any milk and she doesn't have any bread? So she wants to comply, but she's also got two small children and there is nobody because she is socially isolated because of either ethnicity or because of just personal circumstance that can go and get her bread and milk. Without a doubt, the coronavirus has taught us some key lessons about disparity, differences and discrimination. My uh, letterbox, uh, one card come, I do think only... Uh, says wash the hands and go to test and uh, one and a half metre, not close, one and a half metre. That's despite being told over and over that we're all in this together and that it's up to all of us to make this work. We're ready to get back out there again. As we do, it's up to all of us to stay COVID safe. We've also been exposed hard and fast to crisis, communication and misinformation. I'm shaking hands continuously. I was at a, I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody. I think the scientific evidence is, well, I'll hand over to the, to, to the experts, but, but our, judgment, our judgment is wash. Uh, washing your hands is the crucial thing. So are we reaching across all cultures, socioeconomic groups and age brackets? What I know works with young people is it has to be slightly naughty. It has to be slightly funny. It has to be slightly mischievous. It has to poke fun at people like you and me in authority. This is How Science Matters, a Burnett Institute podcast. I'm Tracy Parrish. Throughout this series, you'll meet some of Australia's visionary scientific thinkers, You'll find out what keeps them awake at night as they grapple with a pandemic and how science is playing a leading role in shaping our response. My co-host is Professor Brendan Crabb, head of the Burnett Institute, a microbiologist, malaria researcher and one of the best minds in infectious diseases and global health. Today, is COVID normal really possible? Essentially, what you're asking people to do is to do something. And we know in our everyday life, to get somebody to do something different to what they would normally do is really complicated. Hi, this is Margaret Hellard. I'm Deputy Director of the Burnett Institute. and do a whole lot of work on a whole lot of stuff. Hope you're interested. Margaret, in thinking about what you do, to some degree, some traditional sciences of epidemiology and infectious diseases, you specialise in both of those. But I guess it's your social and behavioural science side that has had the most impact on me 
and my thinking in the last year or so. I remember once in Victoria's second wave, the Premier got up and he seemed exasperated that so many people weren't getting tested. Uh, we have a proven track record of being able, to, as recently as just a few weeks ago, uh, to get on top of these cases quickly. But I need, I need, we need every single Victorian who's got symptoms to get tested. That's what I'm asking of you. And I know I've asked a lot of all of you this last 12 months, but if we're going to keep this as one case or a small number of cases, testing is the only way we can do that. One of the mantras that you repeat came to me, and that is that the intervention's just the start, not the finish. It doesn't make people do things. And I guess I've sensed that it's been a, to a degree, neglected part of our whole response Have I got that right? From the get-go, the most neglected part of it was to understand that this was all about human behaviour and remains all about human behaviour. Life is about human behaviour. So if you in some way want to modify what humans do, you need to think about how one might do that. And in a pandemic, what you're essentially asking people to do is to change what they would standardly do. And you've got to think about it. I have a view that most of us don't think hard enough or stop and think. I always would argue I'm not a particularly clever person, but I probably try to think a little bit more than other people to make up for that. I think there's been a lack of thinking and I think there's been a lack of quiet reflection on that very simple thing that regardless of whether you have a vaccine, a cure, you have a test, essentially what you're asking people to do is to do something. And we know in our everyday life to get somebody to do something different to what they would normally do, is really complicated. So there's all sorts of fancy frameworks that we can have about behaviour change, about this, that or the other. But in essence, I get it back to three key things. Number one, to get somebody to do something, you need to actually let them know what you want them to do in a way that they understand. Now, that might be a language thing. It might be the way they read, they write, but they need to know what it is they need to do. Pretty simple. We're crap at it. We've done it very poorly the whole way through. The messaging has been confusing. The second thing is when you tell somebody, you need to do this, you need to clean your room, you need to wash up the dishes, you need to go and get a test for COVID, the person has to agree that's what they need to do. I've been singularly unsuccessful all my life in having my children agree with me that they should tidy their room. They have a philosophical objection to tidying their room. Actually, it's my problem, not theirs. Why should they tidy their room? So, You've got to expect that when you think it's very reasonable that somebody, when you say, you should go and get a COVID test, they may not agree with you. They may actually go, I actually disagree with the premise of your thing that you require of me. So you have to have acceptance of that. So that's the second thing is that you have to actually have an agreement, a shared agreement within the community that at the slightest symptom, I will get a COVID test. So I need to know that I need to get a COVID test. He wants me to get a COVID test with the slightest symptom. I need to agree that's what I think I should do. And then once I know and I agree, then the really complicated bit, which we've also managed to not do it all well with all levels of COVID, is to make it easy for you to do so. For me to act on what is required of me is a super difficult thing for many people. Often we've blamed the person that hasn't acted as opposed to said actually the blame lies with us, the people that put the system in. It's a really common thing in health systems, that we design health systems, what I would argue, to suit ourselves, the health professional, the researcher, the government, whoever it is. We don't design a system to suit the person who actually we want to use it. And then when they don't use it or use it how we want them to or think they should, we say the fault is with them and not with us. Invariably, the fault is with us. And COVID 
in my view, highlights our hubris, our thoughts that we know better than everybody else. We know better than a bug as well. I don't know whether you realise, Brendan, but the Delta virus is quite a sneaky bug. It's a bit harder to contain. The virus clearly shows us we're not that clever because we're actually poor at behaviour and we don't invest in it. And there's been very little money in terms of the investment in what I would call quality behaviour change. Australians have shown that they're willing to take up behavioural change at times where they're shown the positive outcomes of that. So we saw it with the seatbelts, for example, decades ago where no one wore a seatbelt and then it was mandated and finally lives were saved. Masks, to a certain extent, were that answer, but not really until the effectiveness of that second lockdown in Melbourne. How hard was it to get that message out in the early days? Well, I think it was hard and not hard. To me, mask is really interesting. And mask, I'm going to use as an example of being really open and not having hubris, for want of a better word. I was a mask sceptic. This is back in about March, April 2020. I'd go, the evidence for mask is not strong. But to me, I'm so regularly wrong about so many things. One of the things I actually do is when I think, surely nobody does that, surely that's not right. I invariably know that probably it's a very common behaviour and once again, I'm wrong. My whole scientific career has been based on my incorrect reaction to circumstances. It's been very successful. Anyway, during the lockdown, there was growing evidence overseas that masks might be effective. And so you've just got to, at that stage, say, let's have a go at it and let's have a look at it. And also, to me, life is a whole lot of things in terms of behaviour of the balance of benefit and risk. So the risk of wearing a mask, there is none. Okay, I guess you could choke on a mask, but I'm not aware of any case reports of that. But there's really no downside to wearing a mask against what looked like a growing benefit. And then when we measured it, it clearly showed in Melbourne that masks were effective in stopping the transmission at a community level. But the evidence around the masks wasn't just masks. It was the fact that once it was mandated in Melbourne, the number of people who wore masks. So that was the clear change. So in Melbourne, two things happened. Is people number one, were asked to wear masks and initially it was like, yeah, yeah. And then it was mandated and there were fines and stuff. But when we look at work we've done and looked at photos before and after, people just put them on and people began to put them on just slightly before the fines came in. This is where in terms of behaviour change, you get a choice. I'm going to lock you or ask you not to leave your house for a long period of time or I'm going to ask you to wear a mask to make it more likely you can leave your house. Of course, people will choose that one. But a lot of behaviour change is more nuanced than that. So what we're needing is what I call proactive behaviour. It's more difficult to get people to wear a mask when we don't have disease than when we do have disease floating around the community. You talk about behavioural change, but also you need policy change. And the key was that a lot of epidemiologists and researchers were working behind the scenes to create change amongst the thinking with politicians. Yes. So you need to have evidence to provide a cogent argument to whoever has some level of power, and power is an interesting business, because power sometimes lies where you don't expect it to lie. But for people who have influence to then say, we will change some rules here. But power also lies in community and saying, actually, how do I make sure that the community also is agreeing with this policy? Then you need to translate that policy into people knowing what the policy is. You need the people to agree and mostly people were agreeing at that time. But in other places, people don't. We know we get pushback at the edges. I always don't worry too much at the edges. I think we want the main people. And then you have to make it that you can get hold of a mask and you can use a mask. 
I'm distant from this as a science, but you say we want to know what would make community X or community Y take up whatever intervention, but there doesn't seem to be a science very often of going out and asking them what it would take. This gets back to this stopping and pausing and going, I wonder what Brendan wants for breakfast. Gee, I wonder what Brendan... Tracy, what do you reckon Brendan wants for breakfast? i got no idea what Brendan wants for breakfast. I reckon he might like toast. And you might say, I think he likes cornflakes. Oh, how about muesli? Let's go and buy some muesli. Oh, I don't know. Maybe we'll buy some bread. I've got a better idea. Brendan, what would you like for breakfast? What we need to do from a behavioural perspective sounds just so obvious. So... Why does it seem so hard for governments to get the messaging right? What should they be doing? Our whole training in certain areas, and not just in science, in economics, is evidence, like a linear sort of thing. And what it is instead is you have to say, I'm going to triangulate and I'm going to bring in behavioural things, and it's not as clean. And if you said to me, absolutely, do I believe all of it? No, I don't. But I triangulate it. It's much more nuanced. And if you say, what absolutely worked? We don't know. But it's like in advertising, that old advertising thing is that 50% of advertising works, we just don't know what 50%. So as well, I know that in the science of behaviour change, it is advertising in a way. We're advertising, encouraging, trying to get information for behaviour change. Most of it will not work but some of it will, and we may never know exactly what it is, but we know we have to keep on going. For some reason, despite politicians actually being naturally good at that, at selling themselves and their party, they just don't seem to want to invest in that when the rubber hits the road for a pandemic. Why have we left it in the hands of politicians and perhaps the Department of Health to frame up communication with the public? They seem to have done it so poorly. In medicine, we talk about a guy called Willie Sutton, who was a bank robber. And they said, Willie, why do you keep on robbing banks? And his answer was, because that's where the money is. So why do the politicians and the departments of health keep on doing it? Because that's where the money is. And to get them to feel confident to give money somewhere else, for this particular thing, I think we've been unsuccessful. Australia is one of the most multicultural societies in the world. We have over 270 different ancestries, and over a quarter of Aussies say they were born in non-English-speaking countries. Our vast country is home to a melting pot of cultures, experiences, beliefs and traditions. But when it comes to communicating with people from all different backgrounds, how do we score? We've been really poor at this. We've had moments where we've done it really well and of what I'll call lucidity on a background of general muddlement and confusion. And when we get anxious, our politicians then will stand up and blame somebody. The fact that people have been named virtually as having caused that problem and go back and you think, number one, that's just such a wrong way to get somebody to change behaviour is to think that if I get a test... I might be identified and told that I did something wrong when we desperately need somebody to test. And they look around and say, well, yeah, but they got outed or they got outed. It's bizarre to me that we've done this. And I can understand people being anxious and wanting to explain why it wasn't their fault, as in if I'm in charge of a health department or I'm the government or whatever. 
but actually it requires a level of maturity to say, I'm not going to blame any individual because I need every individual within the community to get on board and to be cooperative. And I hate the word cooperative on a certain level because it sounds like I'm trying to control you. But we need actually them to believe in this as a unified approach as opposed to feeling like I'm either going to do it because I'm scared, I'm going to get into trouble because that never works, or that I'm being forced to in a way that I don't want to because that's not sustainable. We talk about no one being left behind, yet we've got core communities, people who don't speak English, who have immigrated to Australia. They look overseas for some of their information and the situation is so different overseas to here. What still needs to be done, Margaret, in terms of community engagement? And the first thing we have to do is go, actually, they're very varied. So if you come from the Chinese community and what your problems are there might be very different from if you come from the Arabic or the Dinka community or the Indian community. So the first thing is an acknowledgement of difference. The next thing is to say there are some similarities that might be going on here. And one of them is that just translating something from English into, well, Dinka's even hardly a written language. So most people who are Dinka speakers can't even read Dinka. So that's not going to work for you an awareness of that kind of thing. But translating something from English into multiple languages and popping it in a letterbox is not going to do the job. If we think about where people are getting information from, it's from all around the place, from their local community, from overseas, from different places. So one leaflet translated from English that was pretty crap in English anyway in the first place. I actually find it difficult to follow some of those English things. It's English is my first language and I struggle. Is a problem. So instead we need to say... How do we engage with key people? And community engagement is not me telling you something. Community engagement is me working with you to say, how do we best get information into your community? Who is it? How is it? Where is it? And ask you what it looks like. And you and whoever you think and then to get in there. So then the big question is, who's the you? So then you've got to do a whole lot of work looking across community saying, where are the community leaders or where are the key people within communities to start having the conversation? It takes time, it takes money, and there has not been investment here. I have been entirely flummoxed of the lack of understanding of the investment required to do that well because at the very essence of everything, to control it and manage this pandemic, we need proper community engagement of all community Investing properly in community engagement is the start. Then it takes resourcing to collect the data, crunch the numbers and agree on what needs to happen before advising the government. So it's incredibly pertinent in relation to vaccines, related to any intervention, but of course in relation to vaccines. Not just, we've got the tool, how do we get people to take up the tool? We've talked about the absence of science, but it's not completely absent. You run a program called Optimise. How does that work? My first thing is you set up a multi-platform approach where you don't just take one way of looking at information or evidence. You do it in multiple different ways. What we call a cohort study, where we recruit a bunch of people And we follow them over time and get what we call, in my area of work, quantitative information or evidence. So we ask people questions every month going forward about what they're doing, their behaviour, their testing, their thoughts on vaccines, their attitudes. As well, we do qualitative work because we know 
that I could ask you a thousand questions sometimes and I still can't get to the nub of the problem. So a qualitative piece of work is where I do an in-depth interview on a smaller number of people to get a more nuanced understanding of what they're thinking about a topic, say, be it vaccines. So that's the first thing we did. But not only that, with that cohort we set up, we said, not just you, but could you recruit your family and your friends and your contacts so we have a network effect? And that's really important because we don't act as individuals. We are influenced by our networks. So we use the quantitative data and the network data and the qualitative data to inform our models. Normally, at the end of a piece of work, which might go for two years or whatever, how long a study runs for, then you write up papers and reports. But we knew that that can't be the case here. So instead, we deliberately set up a knowledge translation and policy working group where we report to government every four weeks. But prior to it even going to government that report, so we then get input from a community engagement group who are reading the report to get their flavour of actually what they think is the strength, the weaknesses, their agreement, and that then goes into the report that goes to government. A very complicated and difficult road to get there and conceptually quite simple outcome. You're saying to government, if it's intervention X, this is what the community is saying, will work for them. Yes. And as well, we do things, and we're just about to start one very soon. They're called design sprints or co-design work, where we're literally about to start a piece of work funded by the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing. It's a piece of co-design work where key community-based organisations plus researchers plus government come together to explore the question, number one, of with people from culturally and linguistically diverse communities. What's their understanding of getting vaccinated? But getting vaccinated in a situation where even when we're now all vaccinated, you will still, if you have symptoms, need to have a test or have restrictions. How do we message that? And the idea is that then we work together with a communications company to then say, this is actually the way messaging needs to happen in these communities, which might be different in a Dinka community, to an Arabic community, to the Chinese community, to the Indian community. But what does that messaging need to look like as we explore this question? And we give them information from the reports and all of those different things that I just talked about, but as well from any data to say, what should this look like? And then we create that content. So can we identify vaccine hesitancy in specific communities using network studies? And what role do community influences have to play? So within that network study that we look at, we can find essences of things and saying, yes, absolutely, people's network structure is influencing whether or not they will get a vaccine or not. And we won't overcall that data. We'll be very careful about what we see, but we will use that in this co-design work. So we can take it there. So I won't write it in a peer-reviewed paper and I won't tell a government, absolutely, you must do this based on that. But I'll go, I believe that enough to use it over here to have a conversation with community and community leaders about this is what we're seeing. Is this what you're seeing? Because often they're seeing something different or similar or nuanced. And that's then when we create that content around how do you communicate with your community Who are you communicating? Is it the young people? Actually, is it the mums who are influencing their sons or their daughters? Who's the influencers? Because we can see there are influencers that then you use to get the messages out. Your career has had so much to do with infectious diseases that have had a stigma element to them. That's been a big barrier in and of itself. 
And I guess when COVID came along, I thought at least stigma won't be involved in COVID, but it turned out to be incredibly wrong. How does that play out in COVID? Stigma plays out in the community everywhere. So it's as simple as that. And part of stigma is fear. So why are people stigmatised? Because the people who are doing the stigmatising of that person have fear for some reason. They're fearful that that person's behaviour that they don't think is moral will be transmitted to the rest of the community in some mysterious way. People are fearful that if you do work in the gay community that you might suddenly become gay. This fear that my child will suddenly inject drugs because they could get a clean needle and syringe. Well, you feel like saying they can get one anyway for diabetes, like really get a grip. So it's these fears of things that might happen. The fear that I might catch COVID means that I'm not going to be nice to somebody who's of Chinese background because this arrives from China. That's just fear then being translated to stigma. I fear people because they might give me something and I don't get to control them. So it is a real barrier with COVID, I guess, and we saw the, I don't know if it's stigma, but people with insecure work as well, not wanting to tell, get tested for understandable reasons and so on. That's a barrier. That's not stigma. And it wasn't that people were naughty or bad. This is why I always say people aren't mad, bad or malingering or anything. It's they actually can't do it. What are we going to do about the mother on the seventh floor of the North Melbourne Housing Commission flats who has two small children and she needs to stay home and she doesn't have any milk and she doesn't have any bread? So she wants to comply, but she's also got two small children and there is nobody because she is socially isolated because of either ethnicity or because of just personal circumstance that can go and get her bread and milk. So we're asking her to do something that is impossible not only are we asking her to do something that's impossible, but she works actually in casualised workforce because that's the nature of it. So also, why don't you just get in Uber Eats? Why don't you just get a brain? What a stupid thing to say to that woman. She can't afford Uber Eats. She'd love to afford Uber Eats. Or why don't you get Marley Spoon? Oh, how very middle-class Brighton of us, aren't we, darling, getting Marley Spoon? Get a grip. She's lucky to be able to afford baked beans. So we were really slow on the pickup there to support. Have we got that right even now? No, it's just we're careless. We're careless with people. We constantly are. That's to me, is the biggest frustration. Things that I think should be super simple. We remain careless with how we expect people to be able to behave because we have not thoughtfully considered what their lives and the circumstances of their lives may be. I still do clinical medicine. And the thing that I learned and I learn from my patients all the time is to not think that they're going to do what I ask them. And it's, again, not because they're wrong, bad, mad, they don't believe me. It's that they actually can't. And I'm actually making an unreasonable request of the person. So when I say to somebody who's just been released from prison to look after their hepatitis C meds, and they say, well, where would you like me to put them, Margaret? Because in the rooming house that I have where I actually don't have a door that can be locked and somebody steals them. And also, did you say anything about refrigeration? Like, yeah, actually, that was pretty stupid. So you must think about the people. Clearly... You have to look after everyone. You can't leave anyone behind. But I certainly detect that we're now more aware of the interconnection. If you get that wrong, if you get that wrong with anybody, you affect everybody. Has that been something that you think about? There's a weak link in the chain type thing as much as, of course, just the right thing to do? So still we manage to stigmatise people and still the what I'll call the invisible groups, they're not invisible. We just don't look at them and work with them and deal with them, which is terrible when we think about it, still struggling and the pandemic has impacted on them most. Always when these things happen, it is people who are in 
fragile situations where they are impacted on most fragile economies in Australia and overseas, people with other health issues, mental health issues. Whether or not we're learning the lessons fast enough, Brendan, I remain unconvinced. I would like to think that we emerge from this pandemic a fairer and better community and society and a fairer and better world. But at the moment, I think it's very human, but our nature is to blame, to point to whatever. And when we're under pressure, we still do it. We need to vaccinate our region, but we still struggle to share our wealth and our resources in our country. So I remain hopeful, but unconvinced. While the pandemic has magnified the inequalities and the vulnerabilities that we already knew existed in the world, this unprecedented event has also led to another plague of sorts, an infodemic. There's been a rise of rumours, conspiracy theories and a spread of panic. Margaret, even with the pre-pandemic lessons of misinformation led to the whole dramas surrounding the Trump presidency and so on. You know, we knew the power of misinformation and social media being a force for bad, really. But it's been an active area of research for you and your team. Can it be a force for good? I'm sure everything can be a force for good and a force for bad. Sounds like Star Wars. We're doing that work at the moment as to how do you get messages out to young people? And even when we were doing that early work with trying to talk to young people about sexuality, sex, getting tests, sexually transmitted infections. People later on asked me, what was the behavioural framework that I used? And what I know works with young people is it has to be slightly naughty. It has to be slightly funny. It has to be slightly mischievous. It has to poke fun at people like you and me in authority. Essentially, I have to always have in mind where my mother would go, oh, Margaret, really? And if I can get the, oh, Margaret, really? Did you really need to say it like that? That's a bit icky, don't you think? That's actually what young people like. My mother going, oh, Margaret, really? And I actually think there's been an entire lack of the understanding of how it has to be a combination of naughtiness and humour. There are now social frameworks and behavioural frameworks around this, but it should be really the Elaine Hallard, oh, Margaret, really framework of that's a bit naughty. Did you really need to say it like that? Of course I did, because I wasn't talking to you or me, Mum. I'm talking to an 18-year-old. And I guess there's just no other way than social media. I mean, my 23 and 25-year-olds, they just don't watch television no. in a traditional way or any of those modes, read newspapers. Yeah. So you need to watch what young people are doing and how they're doing it and then say, how do I, in a way, invade that space with their knowledge that you're invading the space? It's a bit like going into their bedrooms. You knock on the door you have a conversation, you ask permission. You don't just barge in as well. You can't just barge in and say, I'm coming into your room. That is a good way to get anybody's back up. So you actually need to, again, have a respectful conversation with young people about how they would like you to communicate with them and get them involved. But doesn't this define the problem? That's still a top-down yes. type thinking that the government's got, that surely it's about young people talking to young people about of course what, it is. What they need yeah. on the right platforms. Yeah. For want of a better way of put it, this lack of respect of the person or the community that you're working with, be it a group of young people, be it a culturally and linguistically diverse community, be it people who inject drugs, have a bit of respect for the fact that they will know how to do this better than you. You are an outsider where you're saying, I know I need to be providing some support and help here, 
we're about to do for entirely different work, a big advertising campaign around trying to get people to have hepatitis C testing and the like. That whole piece of work is co-designed with community. I am not going to tell people how to do that. They can work with their community as to how best to do that. It requires respect and trust. When you look at vaccine uptake, there's been whole sectors of the community that have had access to the vaccine up to now and have decided not to have it for various reasons. Do we need incentives to change their thinking? So I'm going to go back to a whole series of things. Number one, people need to know that they should get vaccinated. Number two, they need to agree. And then number three, you need to make it easier for them to do so. Most people probably know that they should get a vaccine and there's very good vaccines out there. A small group of people actually disagree with getting a vaccine. People talk about vaccine hesitancy. It actually doesn't mean you're not going to get a vaccine. It means you've just got a couple of reasonable questions, perhaps, about the vaccine. I don't call that a problem. We'll end up with a very small percentage of people who will always refuse to get vaccinated. Sweet. Be cool about them. We'll say 3% over there. The rest of the people actually are really interested in getting vaccinated. If you wouldn't mind actually making sure that they know where to get it and that they don't have to hang online for three hours to book for a vaccine... And a whole series of things. And then you can bring in this thing of, do I actually pay somebody to get vaccinated? I always am fascinated by the squeamishness which people display about paying somebody to do something. It's a bit like asking somebody to get a test. It's easy for me. I have sick leave. Not that I hardly ever use it. But if I needed to go up the road for half a day to get a test or to do something, it doesn't cost me any money because I do it on my work time or I can take sick day or whatever it is. But if you're actually on casualised work... It's just cost you a large amount of your income. Why wouldn't we then say, let me, as you're doing me, a public service? Because this is the thing, is we require everybody to do us a public service. Why wouldn't we support somebody who needs that? We do it already for middle-class people in terms of vaccination programs for their children so that they get family benefit supplements and all of that kind of stuff. I've never understood the squeamishness. In fact, it's not a bribe. It is appropriately reimbursing people for their time to participate in a public health response. Margaret is acutely aware of the gulf between the haves and the have-nots, especially when it comes to COVID. And what she's learned is that even for someone with a comfortable life and robust health, the disease can really knock the wind out of your sails. I contracted COVID when I was overseas. I was working in France at the time, and then I was going to have a holiday. And we were aware that COVID was happening. It was just bubbling in the background. And as we were catching the one of those really weird perambular things you catch up to you wherever we were staying some fellas got on with us and were chatting about the fact that Macron had just closed the ski fields. Yep, France is closing. So we said, right, jumped on the phone, booked a train back out of there because we figured, well, we've got to get a train back to Paris and then get out. And also suddenly we realised Scott Morrison's closing the country. So I've got to say the train that we got on, we had a ticket. It was a bit like a Japanese subway. And I can remember up until then, we'd been ferociously social distance, wash your hands. And I was just laughing. This is not exactly what I call social distancing. Not a one and a half metres going on here. The train was a mess. It was full of people everywhere. And I just said to John, we are in such big trouble here. The train went so slowly back to Paris that it was rather than a four hour journey, it was a 
seven and a half hour journey. They had to offload people. It couldn't go at the speed. So I'm thinking to myself, I just think we might be in a little trouble here. We both fly out in different directions, John and I, because we just got on whatever flight we could get. We arrived 12 hours different, get into the house, we'd rung our daughter, she'd set up the house for us, so we went into quarantine. So we decided that once we got back to Australia, we'd get ourselves sorted for the 24 hours in Melbourne and then get down to the countryside. And as I was driving down to the countryside, I thought to myself, I've got one of those aeroplane snuffles. I'm biologically a little weird. I don't get jet lag. And I can remember just thinking, I'm a little tired. And John's feeling a little less flash. And then the crunch came. I had a glass of wine, a very nice Pinot. I remember it well because it's a favourite Pinot of a winery just near the farm. It tasted crap. And I knew that this was a really good Pinot. And then John tasted it. He said, I can't taste anything. I'm thinking, that's a little weird. And then I had a cup of coffee, my next favourite thing to have. It tasted like I was drinking black grounds of dirt and nothingness. And I remember just jumping online. I've looked up the symptoms and I suddenly thought there's this early description of discusia, which means stuff tastes crap or doesn't taste at all. So you'd either you don't have taste or it tastes crap. And I thought, oh, we are such in trouble. So we went and got tested, got positive. I began to feel really not well as well. And that is an unusual thing for me. I couldn't recall when I needed to take time off work to be sick and I've had time off with accidents and injuries and children, but not actually illness. I actually had to go to bed and not do things. Also, I began to get a bit worried about John because you began to have this really terrible cough. And I was thinking, at what stage do we actually get him into hospital? People that know me know that I'm not a person that worries about much at all. Would probably help if I did. But I can remember on the Tuesday, I was literally saying to him, hold your breath. You've got to hold your breath for 30 seconds. And if you can't hold your breath for 30 seconds, I'm driving you into the Barwon Hospital. And then it broke. It broke as if it just suddenly stopped. And you felt so much better. You felt a little unwell, but so much better. Your energy was down, but you suddenly thought, no, I'm right now. Every now and then I think, I wonder whether I'm more tired than I should be. Margaret, what keeps you up at night? Nothing. I am a gifted sleeper. I can't help it. And nothing keeps me up at night. And I thought I could make up a lie for this podcast to look like I was a caring, sharing, non-sociopathic person. But it's just not true. I'd be telling you a lie. If we are to achieve COVID normal, we need to be researching more than just a vaccine and understand how to communicate effectively in an internationally connected world where messages, good and bad, can literally go viral. How Science Matters was produced by Written and Recorded. This is a Bernard Institute podcast. For over 30 years, we've been at the forefront of infectious disease research, public health and national health security. COVID-19 is a complex global health challenge. So join us in the fight against the pandemic and help us to remind everyone how science matters. If you like this episode, catch Brendan and I for our next one, Motherhood in a Time of Pandemic. To hear more, search for How Science Matters on the Bernard Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this episode with two friends or more. If they're new to podcasts, show them how to follow our show. We want this podcast to spread like a virus, but in a good way. I'm Tracy Parrish. See you next time. This podcast series was recorded during June and July 2021. In this evolving pandemic, 
Please search for the latest official coronavirus advice in your area.